We're in Galatians chapter 1. We're going to be beginning a new study tonight. On Wednesday nights, we're going through the Bible, Genesis through Revelation. We're in Galatians chapter 1 this evening. One of the things that I enjoy uh, doing with our kids, uh, not so much our older two anymore, but now our younger two, is to, to take them swinging on the swing set. I mean, such fun for free. You know, get out of the house and enjoy the swing set. We've got a swing set in the, in the backyard. There's a lot of great parks. And when the, the kids' face, when they hit full swing, you know, and we have this uh, expression in our house, what we call arms under, where you grab the kids by underneath the arms and you pull them back as far as you can and then they launch out into the universe. And in that moment, that full swing, they're just enjoying themselves to the utmost and they seem to have the most incredible freedom. And so I've tena- entitled tonight's message as Full Swing. And what I mean by that is that we would find that freedom in the Lord because God desires us to have freedom in him. And as we look at this this book, I want to introduce to you this idea of freedom or remind you of this idea of freedom. John 8 verse 36 it says therefore if the son makes you free you shall be free indeed. John 8:32 and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And what was in danger for these churches in Galatia is their freedom in the gospel was being attacked. In Galatians 5 verse 1 it says stand fast therefore in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. And I I wonder how many times we really experience that freedom in the Lord that God intended. So I hope over these next few weeks you're encouraged in this area of freedom, this area of entering into the full swing, enjoying the Lord, tasting and seeing that God is good, knowing the grace of God. So let's pray. Let's ask that God would bless the study of the book of Galatians. Jesus, uh, I look at your life and I think that you were probably filled with joy. You were filled with freedom. You came to die for our sins and rise again so that we could enjoy you to the fullest, that we could be like a child on the swing set that is in that place of sheer enjoyment. And and I pray that you would cause your grace to be afresh in our hearts and our lives, that we would be reminded of the freedom that you gave to us. And we know the freedom costs you everything. Father, it costs you your son. Jesus, it costs you your life. And and may that impact our hearts, impact our lives. God, we pray that there would be real encouragement in our lives, that we have ears to hear and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. As we start a new book, it's important to lay a foundation to get a little bit of a background of this book. The author is Paul, and we know that absolutely from verse 1. Paul tells us, he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Some of the letters in the New Testament, like the book of Hebrews, we we don't have the author introduced to us, so we have to try to put that together and deduct who the author is. But we know clearly that Paul is the author of this epistle uh, to the Galatians. Who's the audience? This is not just one church. Like the church of Corinth, he was writing a specific church, but this is a group of churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. So if you've been watching the news and you're looking at Turkey, uh, this was to the churches that were in Turkey, in this area of Galatia, and they would pass this letter around. What's the purpose? Why is Paul writing this letter? It's defense of the gospel. It's the defense of the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. These believers had received Christ, had trusted 
Christ's death and resurrection for salvation, and then people came in and said, well, that's great that you trust Christ for salvation, but now you need to sell magazines. If you really want to know that you're saved, then you've got to sell some magazines. Well, it's great that you trust in Jesus, but if you really want to know you're saved, you need to get some of this holy underwear. And once you have the holy underwear, then you know that you're, you're in the in crowd. Some of you are looking at me like, what are you talking about? Just look it up online and you'll find some, some religions that are going to try to sell you on the, the holy underwear. should run for your life if someone's trying to mix Jesus in underwear. You know, you know what I'm saying? But it's very easy. It's very subtle for someone to come in and go, well, Jesus plus, the gospel plus. If you're really serious about this, then, then this is what is needed in, in your life. And what was so strange is that the the churches in Galatia were so quick to leave the gospel and enter into this legalism, enter into these Judaizers that were trying to bring them back under the law. So for Paul, this is paramount. This is so important. This church, this new church that they would, multitude of churches, that they would not leave the gospel. It's the defense of of the gospel. So the, the theme is the freedom that we have in Christ the result of the gospel in our lives. The key phrase is the just shall live by faith. If you've been studying the New Testament, you may know at this point that this is used three times in the New Testament. In the epistle of Romans, in Hebrews, and here in Galatians. The just shall live by faith. You're justified by your faith apart from your works. And so that's the theme that we have. The outline, if you're into outlines, if you want to write this down, the first two chapters are personal. It's the preacher of justification. It's Paul. He's going to be autobiographical of his own experience with grace. So the preacher of justification, and then chapters 3 and 4 are doctrinal, the principles of justification. He's going to get into the nuts and bolts and go deep into the truth of, of justification. And then five and six are practical. It's the privileges of of justification. It's the freedom that we have in Christ because of justification. Verse one of chapter one, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul, persecutor, coming against the church, taking Christians, arresting them, killing them on the road to Damascus, radically converted. God calls him by name. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? God gives him a call, an immediate call, when he receives Christ as a Savior. We're reminded by Paul that no one is beyond the reach of God, amen? No one is beyond the grace of God, the goodness of God, to save us and to then call us. And he says here, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, as you study his letters, the way he introduces himself gives you the tone of the letter. If he introduces himself as a bondservant, that means he's got his gloves off. It's a little more softball. It's not such of a heavy tone, if you know know what I mean. But if he introduces himself as apostle, he's saying we got some really important things to deal with. When we studied 1st and 2nd Corinthians, how did he introduce himself? Paul, an apostle, because there were serious things to deal with, and he does it as well in this letter. Apostle means the one that is sent out. It's the spiritual authority that God had given to Paul. 
He emphasizes in verse 1 that this calling was not from men, that it came from God. It was God-made, not man-made. And that's so important in the things that God has called us to that we know it's the Lord who's called us. It's the Lord who's leading us. It's the Lord who is equipping us. Because if we're not called by the Lord, we're not going to make it. We're not going to last. We're not going to endure. And he could look back in his life and go, God called me. He could look present in his life and go, God has called me. And what's unique is it's not going to look like the same for every person because we're a body. So your calling is going to be unique to you. My calling is going to be unique to me, and God's going to work that out in our lives. And Paul emphasizes that here. In verse 2, And all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Paul says, there's guys with me, traveling with me. Paul never did ministry alone. The Christian life is not meant to be left alone. He traveled with others. We need that fellowship. We need that encouragement from one another. Also, the message that Paul's giving is not just exclusive to him. It includes others. And he says, the guys that are traveling with me, they greet you to the churches that are in Galatia. This is that area of Asia Minor. Paul went here on his first missionary journey. So this includes these cities, Derby, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, this southern region of Asia Minor. It puts Paul's letter at about 50 AD, the end of the 40s, right into the early, early 50s. So you can think this is the beginning of Paul's ministry. God uses him to plant these churches, and all of a sudden they're in danger of leaving the gospel, and he's writing back to them the importance of them staying founded in Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. He takes the Greek greeting grace and the Hebrew greeting peace and he puts them together. The Greeks would greet each other grace. The Hebrews would greet each other shalom, peace. But this church involves Jews and Gentiles, so he includes both of them together. They're also an expression of what God does in our lives. Grace is God's unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor. It's one of Paul's favorite words. He uses it a hundred times in his writings. All of the other New Testament authors only use it 55 times. He's the apostle of grace. He wants us to know that God is gracious to us. Always this order. If you look at grace and peace in the Bible, in the introductions, grace always comes first, then peace. You'll never see peace before grace. Why is that? Because it's not until we know the grace of God, that we're rooted in the grace of God, we believe the grace of God, that we'll experience the peace of God. Even as a believer, if you have a works-based mentality with the Lord, you'll have no peace. Because you'll be going, did I do good enough? Did I read my Bible enough? Did I pray enough? Did I give enough? Did I witness enough? And that's not going to result in peace. But when you come to that place of realizing God has finished the work upon the cross. Jesus has finished it. You're as forgiven as you're ever going to be. You're as as much of the child of God as you're ever going to be. And you can rest in that place of your position in Christ Jesus. What's happening right now, this week? What's the top story in the world? It's Powerball. That's what it is, right? Now, everybody's probably imagined a little bit, what if I were to win Powerball? Well, first you got to tithe, right? No, I'm not, con- <laughs> I'm not condoning Powerball. You know, it's not, that's not where I'm, I'm going here. But you could imagine probably what you, you might do with, with that much, much money. 
But have you considered how much more your spiritual bank account is in Christ? The grace that's been given to you in Christ Jesus. You can't put a price tag on the blood of Jesus. You can't put a price tag on the wealth that you have in Christ Jesus. That you're joint heirs with Christ. That you're seated with heaven in the heavens. So the grace of God, then resulting in the peace of God, it comes from our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the giver of grace. Verse 4, describing Jesus who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. We know the Father so loved the world that he gave, he gave his Son, but also Jesus willingly gave himself. So the Father gave and Jesus gave it. Here it's a reference to Jesus who gave himself for our sins. He paid the price for our sins, laying his life down upon the cross to be that ransom to buy us out of sin. What was the goal in Christ dying for our sins to deliver us from the evil of this present age? And that's the ultimate destination for us as believers. God is going to deliver us out of the evil of this world. We're going to be with the Lord. We sang tonight about the presence of God. And at some point when our life is done here on this earth, where the rapture of the church happens, we're going to enter in literally to to God's presence. We're going to be delivered from this present evil age. But we're also currently delivered in the sense that God has broken the power of sin. We're not of this world. He's adopted us as his sons and his daughters. And that's the will. That was the will of God our Father. That was his intent to send his son to die for us so that we could be delivered from this evil present age. Church, I think we need to be reminded of this because every time we watch the news, we read the news, we get on Facebook, we get on Twitter, we're reminded of how evil this world is. When we look at our own hearts, we're reminded about how evil our own hearts are can be extremely discouraging. There's, there's enough out there to where we can walk around in complete discouragement. We have to remember, we are delivered from this present evil age. Amen? Amen? God has given us eternal life. He's delivered us from sin. Verse 5, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. It's to the glory of God that Jesus gave himself for our sins. It's him who receives praise. It's him who receives glory for this tremendous gift. Verse 6 jumps right in to Paul's warning, to his correction, his, his chastening. Now, students of the scriptures, especially the New Testament, Paul's writing, what's missing? Take a moment and look at this introduction. What's missing? Anybody got it? There's no commendation. There's no thanksgiving. Most of Paul's letters, if I am right, the rest of all of Paul's letters, he will say something that he's thankful for about the church. Even the church of Corinth, that was extremely messed up. (laughs) But he doesn't do that with this group of churches. He just jumps right into it. He says, I'm thankful God loves you. I'm thankful that God died for you. Grace and peace upon you. But he doesn't draw out any of the attributes in these churches to compliment them on, possibly because he's so passionate about this main point of the gospel. He says, I marvel that you're turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Paul says, I'm blown away. I'm taken back. I'm surprised. I marvel. I wonder at how you could turn away from him, from Christ, who called you into grace. The word turning away, it means deserting. Some translations even translate it as such. 
That's the temptation that the church of Galatia was going through, was to desert from Christ, to turn away from Christ. To turn from the gospel of believing Christ's death and resurrection for forgiveness of sin is deserting Christ. If we stop believing that Christ's finished work on the cross is sufficient for the forgiveness of our sins, that's a departing from Christ. We can't depart from Christ's message and hold on to Christ. Does that make sense? A lot of times people want to depart from his message but say, well, I'm still into Christ. Well, if you're into Christ, then you have to hold on to his message. They're turning away from him who called you into the grace of Christ. This is so subtle, this different gospel that's being presented to them. It was one of leaving the grace of God to trust in their own works. Grace is an offense to our flesh because it tells us that we can't do it on our own, that we need a savior. There's no room for boasting. It's all Christ. So if you'll notice over time, the way that the gospel gets perverted is the way that it gets distorted is to bring in works to where we're we're trusting in the works. And what these believers were facing was to go back to the law, go back to the the Old Testament, to trust in their own works for salvation. So a few things to consider in this area of freedom, full swing. The freedom that God has for us is there's freedom in consistency. Write that down. Freedom in consistency. What's the consistency? To trust the gospel. If there's one thing that we're going to be consistent in our lives, when we wake up every day, it's believing that Jesus is God, that he died for our sins, that he rose again, that our position in him is secure because of our faith in Christ Jesus. That's something we want to be consistent in. That's something we don't want to turn away from. That's not something we want to waffle in. Be consistent in that. If we're going to know what a different gospel is, we have to know what the true gospel is. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to look at what the gospel is according to the scripture. This is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, going down to verse 4. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you that the gospel which I preach to you which also you received in which you stand. You're consistent in it. You're continuing to believe the gospel by which you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Here's the definition. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. There it is. Gospel means good news. What's the good news? Jesus died for your sins according to the scriptures. He rose again three days later according to the scriptures. That whoever believes that Jesus Christ died and rose again, proclaiming him as Lord, is saved. That's how you're saved. Works are an evidence of your salvation. Works are a result of your salvation, but we don't do works in order to be saved. And so it's important to know what the gospel is, to be able to preach the gospel, to continue to believe in the gospel so that we're not deceived by a different gospel. Let's go back to Galatians 1 and look at verse 7. A different gospel which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. What is Paul saying? He's saying... There's a different gospel that's being presented to you, but in reality, it's not the gospel at all. 
Because the gospel means good news. It's not good news because it's not true. It involves works. It involves false teaching. The message of verse 7 is there's only one true gospel. No, even though there'll be many that are presented, the rest are counterfeit, and there's one that is the genuine, the real McCoy. And then there's some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel. This word pervert, it means to misinterpret. It means to distort. I was watching the, the news on the mafia, the real deal mafia over in Italy. And I guess their, their new thing that they're into these last few years over there is they are distorting olive oil. And it's become a, a well-known fact. And they're diluting it with all kinds of craziness and selling it for the extra virgin prices. And they're actually making more money off of the olive oil than off of some illegal substances. You know, they run drugs as well, but they're making more money off of the, the olive oil. And Italy takes their food seriously, apparently, and they're really upset about it. You know, the guys that sell the, the real thing, it's threatening their livelihood, and so they want to try to set, set this straight. They're doing the same thing with wine, with really fine wine. They're... they're, they're selling cheap wine for fine wine prices and no one's seen the difference. And, and so they're perverting the olive oil. They're perverting the wine. And that's the same thing that happens with the gospel. Someone calls it the gospel, but they distort it and they put a different meaning in it. Maybe you've been following some of these stories. Think about some things that you see maybe the gospel's distorted. A big news story that hit in December and also January is Wheaton College, which is a Christian college that has been around for a long time. It has a solid statement of faith as they, they have a teacher that they're in the process of firing, in the process of letting go, because she made this statement that the God of Muslims is the same God as Christians. And, and so that went against the statement of faith of Wheaton College, and it's caused a lot of controversy. There's been a, a lot of people that have been talking and saying, well, this isn't right, and the college shouldn't let her go, and maybe we do serve the same God. And this is from the Chicago Tribune. So this is from a secular news source on January 6th. It's current news. It says, this is the response from Wheaton College. While Islam and Christianity are both monotheistic, believing that there's one God, that's what monotheistic is, we believe there are fundamental differences between the two faiths, including what they teach about God's revelation to humanity, the nature of God, the path to salvation, which is the gospel, and the life of prayer, Wheaton College said in the statement. And we've got to hand it to Wheaton College because they're sticking to their statement of faith, and even more so, they're sticking to the scriptures. The gospel is that you're saved alone through Jesus Christ that Jesus is God, that he died for our sins and rose again. Muslims do not believe that. Muslims do believe that Jesus was a prophet, but they do not believe that Jesus is the son of God. They do not believe that Jesus is God. If you were to tell them that, that would be blasphemy and that they would be very angry. And this is a movement that's happening among Christians. They call it the larger grace that God just kind of fosters everybody in and because they believe in one God, and they believe that Jesus is a prophet, and God is as gracious, then it's all good with God. Now, that may sound good, but it's not biblical, Amen. all right? It's not what God says. What does God say? Jesus, out of his own mouth, said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's only through Christ. It's only through, through the gospel. 
and the gospel's exclusive. So you got to be careful that you don't start falling for false teaching just because it sounds good or it sounds loving or it's being presented to you in the name of Jesus. Another false teaching that's kind of getting a facelift, it's, a, it's kind of interesting how that happens, you know, that there's a, a, a false teaching that's been around for a long time, but then it, get, it gets a nose job <laughs> and people start paying attention to it again. The false teaching is called universalism. And what it, what it is, is that Jesus died for the sins of the world, so then everybody is saved and there is no hell. There, there is no torment. There's, there's no one who, who goes to hell because the blood of Jesus, he, he died for everyone. The Bible says that he died for the world. And a lot of times with lies and false teaching, they'll tell you a portion of what the Bible says. And that's enough to lead someone to deception. Did Jesus die for the sins of the world? Yes. But how is forgiveness appropriated to your account? Through faith. If you don't have faith, then Jesus said you're condemned already. Jesus, out of his own mouth in John 3, said, if you don't believe in me, you are condemned already. Jesus talked about hell more than he talked about heaven. So if you deny hell, then you're denying Jesus Christ. If you depart from the message of Jesus Christ, you're departing from Christ. Does that make sense? You can't have it both ways. And so keep your eyes open. Keep your ears open. Make sure that you know the gospel, that you believe the gospel, that you're going to be consistent in the gospel because false teaching can come at you in some surprising ways. In verse 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach another gospel to you, then what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. So if Paul, for some reason, changed his mind about how men and women are saved and he came and preached another gospel, Paul's saying, you should look at me and let me know that I'm accursed, that I should be expecting God's judgment. Even if an angel comes and presents another gospel, let him be accursed. Here's the lesson of verse eight. It doesn't matter who they are or what spiritual experience you have. If it's contrary to the gospel, contrary to the scriptures, you trust the gospel and you trust the scriptures. People are people, men are men, women are women. They go astray, we go astray. We get things mixed up and messed up. You trust the gospel. You don't trust a person. Paul's saying you don't trust even if I come back later on and tell you something different. Even if you have this wonderful experience with, with an angel, remember what we learned in our study of First and Second Corinthians? Who comes as the angel of light? Satan comes as the, the angel of light. How are most of the false religions in their origin with an angel experience? And the angel gave me this revelation from God. So it's a strong exhortation to trust the gospel, to trust the scriptures. In verse 9, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches another gospel to you than what you've received, let him be accursed. He reemphasizes the same point. And we move on in verse 10. It says, for do now I persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So false teachers, their number one aim is to please people. But Paul's saying, I'm different because I'm not worried about pleasing people. I'm worried about pleasing God. And this is the second thing in this area of freedom. First, there's freedom and consistency in trusting the gospel. And then secondly, is there's freedom in slavery. And you're saying, those two words don't go together. 
Freedom and slavery should not exist in the same sentence. What Paul is saying here at the end of verse 10, notice it underlined is he says, I'm a bondservant of Christ. And bondservant means slave by choice. It goes back to the Old Testament. If the Hebrews had a slave of their own people group, another Hebrew, another Israelite, it was only to last seven years. And then after that, the slave was to be set free. Now that slave may go, you're a wonderful master. Life with you is so good. I want to forever be your slave. Then they would get their ear pierced. And that ear piercing would represent to everyone else, I chose to be a slave. I chose to be a bondservant, a slave by choice. And what Paul is saying here is there's freedom in being the slave of Jesus Christ. Have you found that in your life? And specifically in verse 10 is you get freed up from having to try to please people because instead of trying to please people, you're trying to please your master, Jesus Christ, and he's far better than trying to please people. He asks this question. We need to ask this question. Do I persuade God or men? Do I seek to please men? Proverbs 29 verse 25 says, the fear of man brings a snare. The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Are you struggling or have you struggled at some point in your life of being a people pleaser? I want them to like me. I want them to accept me. I want them to to think well of me. We can fall into that even as believers. We're, We're going through and we're doing even all of these right things, but it's simply to please man. That's a terrible way to live. Just like there's no freedom outside of the gospel, there's no freedom in living to try to please men and women. It's an impossible task. I oftentimes think of it this way. If I'm trying to please someone, then I'm trying to to live in their box inside of their mind. And that's a really small box to live in. You can never fully figure it out. As soon as you eventually please them, then that favor goes away, right? It's fickle. It's here, it's here nor there. Just, just look about how we feel about our sports teams. I, I've been so fickle with the Broncos all season. You know, it's like, I'm ready to just throw them away and never root for them again. And then I'm jumping off the couch going, woo, they're awesome. You know, they're, they're doing great. We might have a chance at winning a playoff game. This is phenomenal, right? And you just go back, back and forth. Now, I know some of you loyal fans, you're not like that. You can pray for me and, and that I wouldn't, would be more consistent, right? It's impossible to please people. But how wonderful the Lord is. God, you're my master. I want you to have control of my, my heart and, and my life. I want to be a slave of choice. I want to please you. Those are instructions that we can follow. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So are you going to fear God or are you going to fear man? Much better to, to fear God. But you can't have it both ways. At the end of verse 10, it says, For if I still pleased men, I wouldn't be the bondservant of Christ. If people have such clout in my life that it's going to cloud my view of being able to please God, it's going to make it difficult. So I have to choose. Am I going to please God or, or please men? The rest of the chapter from verse 11 on, Paul shares his own testimony with grace. If he's going to argue the freedom of Christ, argue the gospel, he's going to share how the gospel touched his heart and touched his life. So it's freedom and testimony, freedom and testimony. Now, if you know Christ as your savior, I want you to think about how God got a hold of your life by his grace for a moment. As we're going to read through Paul's testimony, I want you to think about yours. 
Some of you maybe have a real natural testimony. Maybe it's something like, I was born in a Christian home. I was about five years old. I went to Sunday school. They told me about my sin. If I didn't trust in Christ for salvation, I'd go to hell. That didn't sound like a very nice thing. Heaven sounded pretty good. Called my parents in. Asked to pray to receive Christ. Wasn't perfect after that, but it's pretty natural. You know what? Have you ever thought about how much that's God's grace? How much God saved you from? That he got a hold of you at a young age? That you don't remember a day in your life that you didn't hear about the, the love of Jesus Christ? That is powerful in and of itself. And then others of you, you have a, a story of, of how maybe you didn't hear about Christ so much later in your life. You didn't want anything to do with Christ. And God pursued you with his grace. Both are a testimony of his, of his grace. This is what I want you to see about the freedom and testimony. Is God tells us how to overcome the enemy in the book of Revelation. He says, they overcame the enemy by the blood of the lamb, not loving their lives unto death. They, they had put their life into God's hands. And then it says this, by the word of their testimony. Your testimony is powerful. Your testimony brings freedom. It did in Paul's life because you know the grace of God. You know that God loves you. And, and so let's read about Paul's testimony and reflect on our own testimony. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. He's saying, I didn't come up with the gospel. I didn't come up with grace. God revealed it to me. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Sometimes God uses people in our lives to reveal his grace, but ultimately it's the Lord. Ultimately it's him who reveals our need for salvation, reveals how much he loves us, our need for us to believe, that draws us unto Jesus Christ. And Paul says, it was God who, who revealed Jesus Christ to me, and that was his testimony as he was headed to Damascus. God called him by name. Maybe you heard of the love of God for years and years and years, but at that one particular time, maybe a pastor was sharing with you, or a friend was declaring the gospel, or you heard the word of God on the radio, and there was something different. The Spirit of God was getting your attention. The Spirit of God was, was opening your eyes, giving you the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's grace. That's God's unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor. That's what it was in my life. I grew up going to church, hearing the gospel, knowing the word, but not having it hit my heart, began to feel my emptiness outside of Christ. Interesting how God does that. As a freshman in high school, felt completely empty. Youth pastor says, why don't you write down on this piece of paper what you want God to do in your life this year, and I'll mail it to you a year later. That's a pretty cool idea. For some reason, I know now it was the Lord, I wrote down, number one, God, I want you to be closer to me than my brother. I, my brother's 22 months older than me. He was real. I wanted God to be more real than, than my brother. It was about four or five days later, I was walking home from the gym. And for the first time in my life, I heard the still small voice of God. I heard people talk about it, but I heard it for myself. And God's message to me was, Eric, while you've wanted nothing to do with me, I've wanted everything to do with you. And it was that simple. And I was hit. I was wrecked with the love of God. What happened? God, by his grace, revealed himself to me. That's what happened to the Apostle Paul. God, by his grace, revealed himself to him. 
you can probably remember in your life where the light bulbs went on and God, by his grace, he opened up his love to you. That's the testimony. That's the work of God in our lives. In verse 13, for you've heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. You may be thinking, could God save me? Could God love me? It's one thing if God loves Paul, but could God love me? And and Paul says, I want you to know I persecuted the church to the point where I wanted to destroy it. Have you done that? Have you killed Christians? Have you made it your aim to destroy the church of God? That's what Paul did. And God loved Paul. God loves you. God's calling you by name. In verse 15, but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. So God's grace didn't begin in our lives the moment that we were saved. It actually began when we were in our mother's womb. God saw us. He knew us. He says, I want you to be my child. It goes even before that. The scriptures tell us that he chose us from the foundations of the world. So before God even founded the world, he looked throughout time and he said, I want you to be my son. I want you to be my daughter. Ephesians 1 verse 4 says, just as he chose you in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, before the foundations of the world. Jeremiah 1 verse 5 says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you as a prophet to the nations. And Paul says, You separated me from my mother's womb and called me by your grace. What did Paul do to earn or deserve that? Nothing. What did we do to earn or deserve that? That God would separate us from our mother's womb. That God would call us before the foundations of the earth. It's his love. It's our testimony. In verse 16, to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I didn't immediately confer with flesh and blood. Why has God shown us this grace? So Jesus could be shown through our lives. People came to Christ because they're like, wow, if God can save Paul, he can save me. If God can use Paul, he can use me. Why did God do a work in our life and is currently doing a work in our lives? So we can be a trophy of his grace a sounding board of his grace to reveal Christ in us. Paul knew what his mission was. It was to preach Christ to the Gentiles. God told him that when he got saved. But notice he didn't immediately confer with flesh and blood. It wasn't a popular idea to go to the Gentiles amongst Jewish Jewish believers. And these next few verses show us the kind of time that Paul spent with God nor did I go up to Jerusalem. That would seem like the natural thing to do. He's a Jew that's just gotten saved. He'd go hang out with other Jewish believers, but that's not what he did. To those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. He went out into the desert. He spent time alone with God. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days, just 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the the brother, the Lord's brother, a half-brother of Jesus. Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie. Why is Paul bringing this up? He's saying, the grace that I'm proclaiming to you, I got it right from the throne room of God. I got it through spending time with the Lord. And it confirmed and was in line with 
what the other apostles were teaching about salvation, but he received it from the Lord. All of the greats in scripture have one thing in common, and it's not perfection, thankfully, (laughs) right? It's time with God, time with God. Joseph was used powerfully by the Lord, but he had a lot of time alone with God. David was used by the Lord, but he had a lot of time alone with God. Moses failed greatly, went out to the wilderness to run for his life, and had a lot of time alone with God. We find Paul having lots of time alone with God. We oftentimes look at Paul and think that his life was in the microwave, that he just, in, in one day, in one moment, in 15 seconds, become this mighty man of God that we see, and it took time. He got saved, he began to preach, he was rejected, let out of Damascus on the wall, and spent this time alone in the desert with God. Maybe you feel like you're in a desert, maybe you feel like you're all alone. It's exactly where God wants you to be. Because sometimes we have a tendency to look to people too much, don't we? And we don't look to the Lord. And we don't allow God to reveal his grace to us. And God will isolate us sometimes for a season to reveal Jesus to us in a greater way. John, the disciple, the apostle of love, he was sent to Patmos at the end of his life, this little island out in the Mediterranean Sea. You're saying, sounds nice, but it was for prisoners. He was isolated. Revelation chapter one, he says, when I was on the island of Patmos, I received the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's oftentimes what happens in our lives. God takes us to the desert. He takes us to the island to reveal Jesus to us in a greater way. Also, if you've walked with the Lord for a while, we don't ever grow out of time with God, amen? It's what God uses to get a hold of us, but also what God uses to sustain us, to continue to breathe life in us. It's not legalism. It's not trying to earn or deserve God's favor. God, I love you. You're my father. I want to spend time with you in your word and in prayer. So we finished the chapter, verses 21 through 24. Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Sicilia. One thing that stirs in me as I read these texts is these areas of the world desperately need a move of the gospel again. Turkey needs a move of the gospel. Syria needs a a move of the gospel. And I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. So Paul has such an incredible testimony of being a persecutor turned pastor, but nobody in Jerusalem knows him. No one has even seen his face. But they were hearing only he who formerly persecutes us now preaches the faith which once he tried to destroy, and they glorified God in me. They're like, oh man, God's so good. He, he has saved Paul. So as we apply tonight's message, full swing, freedom. God in his grace, the truth shall set you free. Just like a child enjoying the swing set, there's freedom and consistency. Believing, trusting the gospel. There's freedom in slavery. Being a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Not trying to please men, not trying to seek their approval, but simply living for one master, one audience, Jesus Christ. And then there's freedom in testimony. I know this, I know the blood of Jesus. I know that God pursued me. And tonight, God may be calling you by name. This may be the moment that the Lord's revealing in your heart that he loves you. And if you know Christ, if you just begin, begin to pray. Maybe you've heard the gospel a lot of times, what we just read tonight. 
that Jesus died for our sins and rose again according to the scriptures, but you've never believed it for yourself. Maybe some of you have even believed a false gospel. Well, I'm a good person. I'm better than this person or, or that person. Well, God, God's gracious, and he's going to do the good old boy. He's going to just know that I'm a good old boy. And no, tonight, God is showing you your sin. He's showing you your depravity. And then he's also showing you his love, that he gave you his son, and the importance of believing and trusting in what Christ has done and crying out to the Lord, Jesus, save me. I don't want you to assume you're in. I don't want to assume I'm in. But to look at our hearts before the Lord and say, do I trust the gospel? And we should be able to come to a conclusion of yes or no. Some of you right now are like, yeah, I know. I trust Christ. I believe he's God. I believe he died for me. I believe that that he rose again. And others of you, God is revealing his love and the importance of you making a decision. I'd ask that you'd consider it for a moment. You consider it seriously. You consider it prayerfully. And if you want to receive Christ as your Savior, you want to trust him for salvation, believe him, invite him to be the Lord of your life. As we pray, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. Not responding to me, responding to Christ, saying, I'm trusting the gospel. I'm believing in Christ. I'm asking Jesus to save me. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for how you love us or how you draw us with your love. Lord, would you search our hearts? Would you know us? For those tonight that you're drawing to yourself, that you're revealing your love to them, the gospel, that you sent your son to die for their sins, we ask in this moment that you would, you would speak in the way that only you can, that you would reveal your love. If you need to respond to the gospel, trust Christ, ask him to be your savior, receive eternal life, turning from sin, would you raise your hand and just hold it up and I'm gonna pray with you. It's not my intent to humiliate you. Praise the Lord. I see your hand right there, young man. Praise God. I see your hand in the back. Praise the Lord. I see your hand here. Two hands over here. Praise God. That's you. If God's touching your heart, revealing his love to you, respond. Raise your hand. Praise the Lord. I see your hand as well. Pray this prayer with me. Jesus, I believe that you're God, that you died for my sins, and that you rose again. I turn from my sin and receive your grace and forgiveness. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for forgiving me. You can put your hands down. Father, we know the angels rejoice when one turns to you. We rejoice. We pray you would bless them. You would flood them with your grace and encourage them. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. God's good.